SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles. With me today are Ian and Alexander. In today's episode, we will be discussing the match play scenario, Storm the Camp. And then in our open topic, we'll be talking about old metas versus new metas. Uh, Richard couldn't be with us today, so it's just the three of us. Uh, We'll do our best to... uh, We'll do our best. (laughs) This is... This is weird. We've never had only three people on before. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Awkward silences. Go. <laughs> okay, Alexander, whenever you're ready. All right. So storm the camp, the starting positions, as everyone knows, within um, 12 inch arc of opposite board edges are each player's camp. So one in one corner, one in the opposite corner, all within 12 inches of said corner. The objective of the game is essentially to have more models within your opponent's camp than your opponent does by the end of the game. Victory points are scored as following. Three points if you manage to capture your opponent's camp. If your force manages to capture your opponent's camp and your camp is uncaptured, you instead score six points. You score one point for causing one or more wounds on the enemy leader. Wounds prevented by successful Fate rolls do not count. If you kill the enemy leader, it's three points. One point if the enemy force is broken. Three points if they are broken and you are unbroken. And the special rule for the scenario is the campsite. The campsites are deployment areas of the two armies. A campsite is captured if during the end phase of any turn you have more models entirely within your opponent's campsite than they do. Should your model subsequently leave a captured campsite, it will no longer count as being captured. In order to keep an opponent's campsite captured, you will need to keep your models within your opponent's campsite. Models that are within their own campsite will defend it at all costs and will pass all subsequent courage tests. Uh, So they're essentially fearless within their own campsite. I once forgot this and had everyone flee. Uh, I probably would have lost the game anyways, but that didn't help. So don't don't forget that. Yeah. Also, the the wording wholly within is really important because there's certain scenarios that have the wording. The entire model has to be in the area as opposed to just a part of the base. And I've messed that up on uh, another scenario before. I think it was Fog of War. The entire model has to be in the camp for it to count. Yeah, this scenario is like running simulator 3.0. <laughs> Like, I I just did some quick math on it, and if you deploy, like, a model 12 inches in from your corner, and the opponent does similarly in their corner, then those guys are approximately 44 inches away, and those are the closest models to each other on the board. So, the other ones are going to be further away, because they're going to be off to the sides, or they're going to be behind that guy. And then when you add in terrain, like, it just takes so many turns to get across the board. And it's very hard to do in a timed game. It seems like only a little bit longer, but in reality, it's it's at least two more turns of marching. Because you're also not deploying like 12 inches from the board edge. The march to the middle of the board is so much longer. Yeah, because it's an arc. It's not like it's a it's like a square. So like only one model is at the point of that that 12. Everybody else is tucked behind. Exactly. And, And yeah, it's brutal. I will say, with that being said, siege engines are very nice because you're going to get a lot of rounds of shooting, and any shooting is nice. Like, actually, I imagine the, uh, what's it called, the Defenders of Helm's Deep Legion would actually really like this one because their extra range is actually useful. 
Yeah, I actually think uh, this is the best mission for siege engines because they're backed in a corner, right? They don't have to defend from all sides. They have the maximum range possible out of any scenario because you're firing like diagonally across the board. So they have the most turns to shoot. You could defend it the most easily out of any scenario. And honestly, you're talking about terrain, but if it's a volley fire siege engine, like you don't care about that either. You're also conveniently leaving a few models in your camp to defend it if need be, which is very sure. handy. So you don't have to leave other dudes behind. Yeah. I will say, I for this scenario, I find whenever it comes up in a tournament, it's usually you run to roughly the middle, and then it's whoever gets the, the breaking and leader kills, wounds or kills, gets the win. The rare times where you get points counting for the camp is when you do the thing where you take one or two cavalry and you run them up both sides of the board into opposite edges, and then they eventually converge on the enemy camp. Yeah, but that's when they converge in, like, turn 14. Like Oh, yes. Yeah. No, it, it's... That's not just playing the long game. There's the long game, and then there's playing the uh, storm the camp long game, yeah. where you're like, all right, the first nine turns are going to be walking. Yeah. If your cav has bows and they're doing that, they're not firing their bows while they're running around the edges. They're just running. <laughs> I think on our Faramir's episode, one of our first episodes, in the open topic, we did sort of go over all the scenarios and just give our opinions on which ones we think are enjoyable or tactical. And I think this one, at least locally, it's not a favorite, and I think the main reason is just what was brought up before, where the first 20, 30 minutes of the game is just moving. And, you know, even like even if one side doesn't have like a shooting advantage and is shooting down the other army, which is very unenjoyable to play, like let's say both armies doesn't have shooting, that's boring as well, because you're just pushing models forward for 30 minutes, and it feels a little bit unnecessary when you could play a similar scenario, like to the death, where you're also like running towards the middle to fight, right? Like if you take out the camp aspect of the scenario, I wouldn't say it's like super, super tactical either. What do you guys think? I mean, maybe sometimes I find the movement aspect of Storm the Camp to be a bit tactical because you're trying to outmaneuver your opponent around the edges to get a few models heading towards your opponent's camp. But aside from that, yeah, it, it's one of those games, especially on in tournaments, on timers, where you're like, I just lost. You know, if you're playing an 800-point game, you've got an hour and a half timer, and you spend the first 30 minutes just marching forward and trying to make sure that you're spread out or that you're in a position to block your opponent effectively. And the next thing you know, you've got one hour to play an 800-point game. You know, Well, in- I think for 800 points, we do two hours, but I agree with you. Um, I think I've seen this scenario being played, like the worst case scenario is that uh, at the end of the game, there's only been three or four combats and you just end at a zero, zero. I've seen that more than once. Yeah. An- another thing, too, that affects this is I've played Storm the Camp at least a few times, probably, with my Dwarf Army. And when you lack any form of mobility, it gets even harder. Because I was trying for the longest time, I was trying to figure out how with a dwarf army do I win this scenario. And I've picked all the wrong ways, so I know all the ways that don't work. One way that did work once, but it will never work again, was in a tournament. I had my Kazadoom army. I think it was Balin, a king's champion, and a ballista because I knew that the scenario was in the tournament pack, and I essentially sat in an arc about two inches outside of my own campsite and just thought, I'm not letting him take my camp. 
I'm not letting him take my camp and I let him come to me and I just fired my ballista as many times as I could in that time span until he got there. And I think I won that game like two nothing because I wounded his leader. And that was all that happened in the entire game. It was terrible and it would never work again. But with the lack of mobility, I tried it. And, um, you know, it was the definition of castling. I, I think it would work again, <laughs> honestly. Like, you could just fire the, the ballista at the enemy leader. As soon as you get a wound on him, you're like, perfect. I'm ahead in VPs. Similar to recon, if you're uh, an army that is far slower than your opponent, then your strategy is to not let your opponent pass you. Guard, like, play defensively and try to break them and earn your VP that way. So I could understand how that worked in your scenario. I think especially with the new scenarios that we got in the match play guide, I feel like the designers know that Storm the Camp is a little bit not as tactical and fun as the other scenarios. So they've come up with better versions of it. So like I think uh, Divide and Conquer is a nice variation of it. Like you are starting in the corner as well, but then you also have some of the aspect added in where your army split up and it kind of it doesn't encourage the death ball play. And then you also have the objectives being in the middle, so you're not marching all the way to the other side, or you don't have to like worry about that in order to score your VP. So I think that there are new updated scenarios that take aspects of Storm the Camp and just made them better. Yeah, I think as soon as you said that, one of the first ones that came to mind, it wasn't Divide and Conquer, but that is a, a very good one. I think it's probably the best of the scenarios that fit that description but one that came to mind for me was just a breakthrough it's essentially capture the flag except you know you're attempting to get an objective that is on your opponent's half of the board except you start much closer together and you have to push towards each other in order to actually grab an objective and then move it so it's a little bit more active than the campsite i think that's a better update on a similar kind of scenario setup Ah, uh, it'd be great if the deployment zone was 18 inches from the corner instead of 12. <laughs> I think that's a fairly simple enough change that would make a big difference. Just make the camp bigger. Because then it's it's easier for people to score, and it just it quickens yeah. the pace of the game because you're deployed closer. Like FAQ, FAQ, FAQ. Okay, I'm done. Next edition. I mean, there's definitely something to be said for the fact that, that I routinely, whenever I play the scenario, I'll start moving my models in it. I'll go to my opponent, hey, man. You can go ahead and move your models while I'm doing mine. The first three turns do not really matter because we're going to have plenty of time to, like, remaneuver after that. So just go to save time. And most of the time they're like, yeah, sure, let's do it. I feel like Storm the Camp being, like, on average a lower scoring scenario, it makes a major win in that scenario so much more significant. Like, across the roster, like, let's say you're at a tournament and half the tables are, like, 0-0 or 1-0. And, like, you get a model into your enemy's camp and you win your game 12-0. That's going to shoot you up the ladder, right? It feels like that win is so much more significant because it's so hard to score points. <laughs> it's weird. That's actually, like, a really good point, honestly. Like, like that'll come back to help you out later on in, in the event. Like, if you, if you get, like, a lower, like, a couple minor wins or you even get, like, a loss or something, you could still place pretty high because of all the extra, like, the major win and that and all the extra points. So, yeah. The ability to get that extra tournament point in a tournament going from, you know, a minor win, like most games, I think, for Storm the Camp and like 2-1, 3-2. So if you end up winning by those, you know, three or four VPs, then all of a sudden you're talking four tournament points where most people are going to get two tournament points or one. Yeah, I think that really breaks the field wide open. Okay. 
Let's move on to some army lists today for Storm the Camp. You can find all of these army lists on our Facebook page. Just search Into the West podcast and all of these lists uh, that we talk about will be there. Feel free to follow along. So, Ian, would you like to start with your list? I can go. Uh, Yeah, so as I said earlier, when I was talking about this scenario, siege weapons are perfect in this. So when I was looking for a list to build, I was like, I want to do something with a siege weapon. What would be good? And my mind immediately went to the battle cry trebuchet. Wah. And I was like, no, no, I can't do that. Can't do that. Wait, I just wrote a list with the battle cry trebuchet. That's not, I shouldn't do two in a row with that. So I'll, I'll try and find something else. And I was like, ah, Iron Hills. Well, you know, the Iron Hills ballista is kind of ridiculous and it would be really good in this scenario. But I don't know. I, I do a lot of good armies. So I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'll try something else. What else is left? All right. The only other weapon that has a huge range and um, uh, what's it called? Uh, volley fire. Volley fire, thank you. In the game is the Mordor tre- uh, Trebuchet. So with that in mind, I was like, awesome. I'm going to run a Catapult Troll. It'll be great. And then I was thinking of Charles's old list that he used to run where he had two. And I was like, yes, two Catapult Trolls. That would be amazing. And I started working at the points. I'm like, okay, that's not very feasible. Anyway, what I ended up deciding on was the Gothmog's, what's it called? Gothmog's Legendary Legion? The Army of Gothmog. Army of Gothmog. Thank you. So, for my first warband, I have Gothmog, and he has a shield and the warg. In his warband, he has an orc drummer, one Moranan orc with spear, shield, and banner, seven Moranan orcs with spear and shield, and seven Moranan orcs with shield. My second warband is Goroth, and he has six Moranan orcs with spear and shield, and four Moranan orcs with shield. Third warband is Zagdish. He has six Moranan Orcs with Spear and Shield and four Moranan Orcs with Shield. And my last warband is the Mordor War Catapult. So that's 800 points, 43 models, which is 22 dead to break, one Catapult for my shooting, and 10 Might plus the Master of Battle. So it's not a very complex strategy with this list. The strategy is I'm going to leave my Catapult in my camp. It's going to shoot, probably targeting the enemy leader to try and get some VPs early on. And then I'm going to run 40 defense 6 strength 4 orcs at your base. Moving 9 inches a turn with the drum, or possibly if I really want to, I could march them with Gothmog to make them run 12. So I should get into the opponent's half of the board first with a lot of models. And if they sneak somebody around into my camp, I have a troll sitting there to defend it that is immune to courage tests because it's in the camp. Pretty simple. I think, Ian, I think you just found the most effective way to ever use this legendary legion ever. Like, the first thing I thought when I saw Army of Gothmog was, oh no, Ian, not the Army of Gothmog. I've played that list a lot. It's fun, but it's not exactly optimal. But in this case, I, like, specifically for Storm the Camp, I really like this list. Because you've got your march in there, and, you know, Gothmog, you're only going to get a handful of turns of combat, we all know, based on the movement situation in this scenario. So you're going to have a lot of movement out there. The catapult is going to be able to do a lot of damage. I mean, obviously, in a full tournament pack, whether it's pre-selected or if it's randomly drawn, whether or not the war catapult will make up its points over a whole tournament, don't know. But in this scenario, yeah, this is one of the few things in the scenario that I fear is coming up against either the battle cry trebuchet or this. So, yeah, re-rolling to hit, re-rolling to scatter too. So your increased ability with that will be devastating in order to get one of the secondary victory points, which could end up being the primary victory points because actually getting into the camp is so difficult. I don't love Zagdush, but, you know, again, he's not going to be directly in combat immediately and he can do a lot of damage. I think typically I'd prefer the other one. 
uh, what's his name? Guritz. Guritz, that's the one. So, that's, yeah. The, that's typically when I need to march, though. I typically would have him and Gothmog at the same time, so you can just yeah. use the march off Gothmog. Yeah. Goroth is just fun, because when you actually get into combat, he's a, he's a little beat stick. I will, I guess, address the, uh, the Zagdush question. Like, looking at the other options in the list for named heroes, I have Guritz, but like you said, like, I already have the march, so, like, I don't care as much about him. And that that's also because, like, I don't really need Gothmog to do a lot of fighting in the list. Like, he might charge some troops, but he's not going to be engaging the big enemy heroes. Like, I don't need him to do that. I just need him to sit behind the line, give my army rerolls and stuff. And if I do break, just sit there, because in this Legion, he's a hero of legend, and his standfast affects other heroes. So once I break, I just need him to sit there and make everybody pass courage tests and master battle stuff. So having Zagdish in there, who is another three-might hero who can strike, and he's got the three attacks too, for 60 points, I'm kind of happy with him. It's kind of nice. He can just do his thing. And you know what? If he is out of Gothmog Standfast, he is Courage 4, which is actually really good for an orc. And all the other orc heroes are Courage 3. So <laughs> that's kind of nice. Yeah. No, I think when you put Gothmog in the list, it kind of, especially in a list like the Legion, where you only get any of these named heroes, or Gothmog's Enforcer, which is just, yeah, no one's no one's picking Gothmog's Enforcer. Sorry. I'd rather have the three might on another hero who's more useful than three yeah. potential might. Yeah. You're right. That probably is one of the best ways to use Gothmog in this Legion in general, not just this scenario, just because he can fight. But I've often found him a little bit fragile because if he loses a fight and loses his work, then he starts to really kind of struggle in infantry combat. So I don't think competitively Gothmog's Legion gives enough because you essentially you're, you're doing it for the buff to his time of the orc and Age of Men is over, which is conditional. And if you're if you're going to crowd around the war drum, you know, even even time of the orc from 12 inch to battle wide, it's not going to be much of a difference. And I think you're losing the moral bonus, which is huge. You're losing access to magic, Black Numenorians. I think overall the Legion is not like super competitive, but I think the courage buffs that you're, you brought up aren't bad. I mean, they're probably the only reason you would take this list is for those courage buffs. Being an all-orc list, you need it. But I still think that uh, regular Mordor probably better competitively. I like your idea of the mass three-attack orc heroes. Or no, Goroth is two attacks. But your like, idea of spamming orc combat heroes. Yeah, I mean, and with the with the buff too. So hopefully, like the yeah. first round of combat or the first turn, I get a line on line engagement. I can call yeah. the time of the orcas come, get all my heroes in, and just hopefully mash up a whole bunch of enemy troops, and then kind of get me really close to breaking the opponent. Yeah, I think though that cost efficient wise, I think just having Guritz replace one of your heroes it makes more sense than getting a drum. Personally, I'm not a fan of the drum profile because you can disable it pretty easily. Specifically for Storm the Camp, it's nice to be able to stack that with March. I get it. But I think if you were to go into a tournament, you probably wouldn't consider it as like a viable choice most of the time. Usually it's like, okay, if I want more movement, I'll just take two heroic marches instead of one march and a drum. That's my thinking anyway. But again, I've never seen Ian play Mordor, so maybe. (laughs) Is that... I might be confusing the drums here, but I, because like when I initially built the list, like I said, I wanted the two catapults and was like, okay, wait, I'll put in a troll drummer instead of one of the catapults and I'll have one catapult, but then the points didn't work out. So I just dropped it to an orc one. But does, is the orc one still a 12 inch radius? Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, it just only affects orcs instead of the troll one, which does everybody. So, yeah, no, I'm still fine with that in the list. Like, I understand the synergy. It's just like to me, I would rather have two heroic marches than being able to stack a drum in a heroic march. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I could. Uh, how many guys would you have to drop? Three, and then some spears, and then I could probably swap him out, the drummer out for uh, Guritz. Do that, or or you just swap Zagdush for Guritz, and then you can use the points that you spent on the drum on more orcs. Uh, max out, maybe max out Gothmog's Warband and Goroth's Warband. But, I mean, in the context of Storm the Camp, I think this is a very strong scenario, and uh, being able to close in that quickly with an all-defense six army, once you march up and get to your opponent's half of the board, you're that close to their camp. And having that big of a defense six wall, as soon as there's a hole in the battle line, you could just march orcs into the camp, and your opponent might not be able to kill them fast enough, right? Especially if it's like a strength three army. So uh, I do think this is a good list for Storm the Camp. Honestly, the thing is with this is I feel like this version of the Legendary Legion is one that you might take to a tournament. Like you might, like you said, you might swap out one of the heroes. But other than that, I think the general composition is pretty much spot on for what somebody could take to a tournament if they're running this list. I think if they're going to run the Legion, then this is a very strong tournament build. It's the best you can do with it, given how limited the Legion is compared to Mordor as a whole. Alex, do you want to go over your list? All right, so I have a uh, mostly mounted Rohan force for this list. I, you know, I thought I'd take another stab at Rohan. I I was like, it's been a few episodes. I'm ready to get hurt again. Uh, because I don't think I've ever written a successful Rohan list for this podcast, or ever. So I have uh, Thaden, of course, the centerpiece, on horse with heavy armor and shield. Six, uh, Rohan, Royal Guard with throwing spears. Royal Guard have horses. Three, Riders of Rohan. One, Rider of Rohan with banner. Two, Warriors of Rohan with shield. And four, with bow. Have Amar on horse with shield. Ten, Riders of Rohan. And uh, Darewine on horse with ten, Riders of Rohan. 800 points, 39 models, breaks at 20. Nine, Might, and 30 bows and six throwing spears. So the general idea is kind of insulate Theoden. He'll fight when he has to, but of course he gives all those bonuses to Rohan. So he's kind of going to give those little bonuses and fight here and there. But the main fighters will be Darewine and Amer, because Darewine can get the free heroic combats near Theoden and Amer as Amer. You know, obviously we've got a lot of mobility. I've got a march in there. Lots of bows. So, you know, I, th- I think positioning is really my thing with this list. Obviously a little bit worried not having a siege engine, you know, to come up against something like Ian's list would be a pretty terrifying few turns, like running forward, trying to keep spaced out so that I can hopefully not have Theoden, you know, bonked on the head by a massive bolter. So, yep, that's that. So I just kind of, like, charge out at full speed, try and meet my opponent in their half, which really shouldn't be too difficult, and hope that my mobility pays off by the end of the scenario. You were almost there, Alex. You were six warriors on foot away from a great Rohan list. Because <laughs> if those six warriors were three riders instead, you would be all mounted, you would 
be only one breakpoint lower because you'd be three models lower and you're a 39 and you would have the legion bonus which gives you a free hero combat free orc strike once a game that bonus rule from that legion that just makes it a great list but also it's great in storm the camp because if you get a good hero combat off you can either use that to get in extra kills if you're playing the momentum game, or you can use that as extra movement to get closer to your opponent's camp. I'm just thinking what you are trying to go with in this list. Like the six wears Rohan, they're going to be falling behind, right? So I think you're probably going to just stay in the camp with them, like a small warband to guard the camp while the rest of the cab move out. But I think you've got enough mobility that you don't need to worry about stragglers trying to capture your camp. And yeah, I just think you're really close. You just needed to write a list with the Legion. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is that uh, Theoden has to be on, a, on on an armor horse, but you could tweak the points to to fit that armor horse in, I think. Yeah, I, I'm kind I'm of the same place, honestly. How, how did I know Charles was going to say that? But yeah, I mean, for me, maybe it's the mentality that I've always got to have a little bit of defensive reserve. You know, it's the whole I need to build a balanced list uh, mentality coming out again and not not letting me build something that's skewed one way or the other. So, yeah, I I definitely stuck a few infantry in there to kind of try and allow my cavalry to just, just focus on moving forward, move in one direction, just go towards the camp let the six fearless infantry kind of take care of anything that sneaks past but yeah maybe i should have just taken the legion i should have just cut those six out taken a few more riders and gotten that free heroic combat you know because that can be if you play your cards right and you get a good charge off that turn it's an absolutely devastating special rule so i think you're right there still my best rohan list though by like 10 miles so i'm still relatively happy with it I mean, I don't know if I have much more thoughts to add besides what Charles said. I feel like he kind of covered it pretty well. But, I, you know, 39 guys or 36 guys, you're still going to have 30-plus cavalry models running at the enemy's base. And you could very easily split it up into two groups that can both march. So you're going to get very close to the opponent's camp. Because you could also just go up a little bit and then just fire 30 bows at them and see what happens. So... Yeah, an all-cav army in this, you just have a lot of options. You, you dictate the play, basically. Yeah, you're right about that. I guess if the Legendary Legion didn't exist, you could do the split up and exactly what Ian just described. It just In a lot of other scenarios, I guess Storm the Camp's okay, but in a lot of other scenarios, it wouldn't make sense. So if you're going in a tournament, I would still question this composition because Rohan infantry, they can't take spears, so they're kind of like a skirmishy force. And six of them, like in a lot of cases, they're just going to be left behind, you know? And to spend extra might on marches just for them to keep up, they're more of a burden than a, a utility, in my opinion. Oh, I, I'd still leave them in the camp. They just they, they just sit in the camp. Yeah. Oh, you mean in general? I see. Yeah. yeah. In general, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that, I agree. I think the versatility of having those free heroic strikes and stuff is just, like, why not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I brought the final list of the day. It is an Azog's Legion and Dark Powers of Dolwilder Alliance. So in the first warband is a leader, Bolg, on a warg. He's leading six Gundabad orcs with shield, five Gundabad orcs with spear and shield, one Gundabad orc with shield and banner, one warbat, and one ogre. And in the second warband, we have a goblin mercenary captain with six mercenaries. And then we have allied in from Dark Powers, 
an Abyssal Knight, leading five Hunter Orcs, two Hunter Orcs with bow, one Fell Warg, one Mirkwood Spider, and a second Abyssal Knight Warband with the exact same Warband. So that is a total of 800 points, 42 models, and nine Might. So the idea of this list, there's a lot in this list, a lot of different kind of models, and they all play to some sort of synergy. So the Abyssal Knights, you don't really see them a lot. Generally, when you're seeing Dark Powers, Nazgul, you'll see uh, the Witch King or Lingering Shadow, you know. But essentially, the Abyssal Knights are the ones that allow you to teleport to where the other one is. So it's really only super worth it if you have two in the same list uh, most of the time. The other thing that they bring is uh, they have Elven Blades. So that's a great supporting hero for Bolg, being a fight seven hero. It just, it's great to have an Elven Blade in there to fight bigger enemy leaders. So the other thing that the Abyssal Knights can use in this scenario is their teleporting rule. So it allows them to be very flexible in either defensive or an offensive role. What you can do is you can have one of the Abyssal Knight warbands move up with Bolg and fight offensively. And if my opponent is a lot more mobile than me and they're playing really aggressively, they're trying to get into my camp, the second Abyssal Knight Warband can stay close to the camp. And once I fend off the enemies trying to get in, what the Abyssal Knight can do is he can teleport any turn to the other Abyssal Knight that's at the front lines. So it kind of gives me like an option of playing defensive or offensive with the second one. And uh, the Gundabad Ogre is a nice secondary combat threat so that not all of the combat duties are on my leader. Another cool trick that I realized in the last couple of days uh, that I might not have talked about in the past is his rule where he can, like, if he lands on the base of, like, a friendly orc, their orc is removed as a casualty. That's actually a pretty good way to stop an enemy hero combat. If you end your move on like the base of one of your gunbat orcs fighting a big enemy beat stick, you can just land on the edge of their base and remove them. And, you know, that, that's a cool way of stalling them for one turn. And uh, the bats, it's pretty straightforward there. You know, they can knock down enemies that they fly over. It's a nice utility to have. So the last one would be the Mirkwood Spiders. The last utility I want to talk about. So I actually took these in combination with the four Hunter Orc bows. And they do have the Morgul Arrows rule that Bolg does. The Morgul Poison, which if you wound an enemy and it's not prevented with fate, then subsequent turns they have to make a dice roll each turn. And on a one, they suffer further wounds. So this in combination with how the Mirkwood Spider's webs work, It forces enemy heroes to use their fate, and they can choose to either use their fate to avoid being wounded by the Morgul Arrow, or they can choose their fate to avoid Paralyze. So if they use their fate to prevent a Morgul Arrow from wounding them, then I'll be able to Paralyze them more easily. That's essentially the idea. So I also just thought Mirkwood Spiders happened to be a great choice, being like a great over-terrain and quick as well. So I thought they would be great and storm the camp yeah that's mostly the idea of the list the goblin mercenaries are also just really flexible in a scenario like this you know they can they can deploy offensively or defensively it really depends on how the terrain is set up a lot of the time i see terrain in a camp so to be able to deploy in an enemy camp or instantly deploy in your camp to defend it is huge 
especially when you can choose which turn uh, they arrive on. So I think there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of potential with this list in Storm the Camp. There's just a lot of the things are situational, but you have a lot of tricks up your sleeve. I really like that ogre trick. I've never thought of that before, but that's super handy and neat. And I, I, I've never seen anybody use it like that, but yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I'm just going to say that I like it for the large number of different tricks that this list can pull. You know, it's it's not like a, well, it's not a one-trick pony where it can go do one thing exceptionally well. It has, you know, it has spiders, it has a couple of fell wargs, it has the ogre, it has a war bat, it has mercenaries that can just pop up wherever they want. It has two teleporting Nazgul. It's, yeah, this is going to be one really annoying list to have to fight. Because when you're done with all that, there's Bolg on his warg. And, I mean, I guess as long as they don't have the massive robot Star Wars type terrain vehicles, uh, we'll be okay. Right, Ian? Right? Ian? Ian? Yes, I got it. I got the reference. Yeah. Yay, family guy. Yeah, you've got an oppressive amount of tricks in here. There's a lot going on, man. And I'm just thinking of, like, now that you mentioned that with the spiders and the hunter or foes, now I'm trying to think of a way to combine that with the, the necromancer, too, with his curse or um, uh, the explode. What was it called? Chill Soul. Chill Soul, yeah. But that's a complex list for another day. Hmm. Yeah, there's just, like, okay, wait, you have two Merkwood Spiders, one Bat, and one Ogre, and then two Fell Wargs. So you got a good amount of movement, and then you have, I mean, the Mercenary Captain has March, but situational if you'll be able to use it in this scenario. But yeah, Bolg also has March, and, like, he, he's got a, uh, and Strike and stuff, so he's, he's got good heroic action. So your mobility is pretty good. Numbers are pretty solid. I, I think... Like, I could definitely see something like, like you taking this list just in general yeah. to a tournament. I mean, if you knew the other scenarios that were coming, you might swap out the, the Nazgul for some different ones. But having the two Abyssal Knights is fine. Like, why not? Like you said, like they're nice support for Bolg with the, the Elven Maid weapon. Yeah, there's just a lot going on. Oh, yeah, to jump back to the Ogre thing, I was thinking about it a bit more. I do like the trick where you run over your own guy and kill him. However... I feel like this kind of places your ogre in a bad spot because the next turn, assuming the enemy can get their hero into that ogre, that ogre has a high chance of dying. Yeah. So I don't know if that's the best use of your ogre. I do love it as a trick because because it has to be where it stops its movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be very careful with the way you do that. Or maybe you can do weird things with the bases and how you back away models nearby so they could back away into the gaps so the, the ogre couldn't get charged the next turn, but you'd have to be very cheeky with it. I mean, even if your ogre gets charged, you still have uh, you still have potential like ways of stopping the hero, right? You still have the, the war bat, you still have mm. uh, the Smirkwood spider webs. Mm-hmm. And Bulk's base, is, uh, we all know it's tricky, and you can get it into really small spots. You know, you can Tokyo Drift into like a small corner. And small space. Surprisingly easy for him to charge three models or one models, considering he he is a cavalry. Yeah, yeah. and frustrating. Yeah, man. I I was looking at the the mercenary captain rule again, and I I forgot that they can just they can pick any terrain piece the turn they're rolling for. Like it doesn't have to be a pre-selected one. So yeah. that's that gives you a lot of options. 
Because, yeah, you could leave a couple of, like, hunter orcs back in your camp just to be safe and then run everybody up. And then provided there is a nearby terrain piece, you just hold the goblins in reserve, I think, for a and, while. And honestly, honestly, if it's a situation where I can predict which turn will end, let's say, like, I can find a way to kill my own models with the ogre and mm. just get it down to 25%, I could potentially deploy the mercenary warband in the enemy camp if there's a piece of terrain there. And if I know I'm going to outnumber, it, it's seven model warband. So unless my enemy has more than seven models or more than, you know, unless my enemy outnumbers me, wouldn't that just mean a guaranteed capture? I, yeah, honestly, because, I mean, he's Courage 3, but you got two Might and a Will. So that effectively, effectively pushes you up to Courage 6. There's still a risk. Yeah, but that's a move phase, right? If I fail, then I won't try to quarter myself. Yeah, yeah, you just, yeah, you have to be careful. You have to be really careful. I, I think the better way to do it is make sure you do it, like, the second turn before it ends, but you got to make sure you pull enough of their troops away so it doesn't matter if they run back one full move, you know? But, yeah, no, that's it's still definitely a very viable strategy. Okay, now that we've discussed all three lists, we'll do a vote on which one we think is the strongest in Storm the Camp. And in this week's case, we only have three scenarios. So which one is the best and which one's the second best? Not me. <laughs> I'm going to go. For which one? Up or down? Either. I'm going to go Charles Ian, one, two. Ooh. I don't know. I'm a little bit biased, Charles, I must say, because I have trebuchet. <laughs> and for that fact alone. I mean, I've used the catapult nice. before. I know I know how good it is. Yeah. And even though from my review, you can tell that I'm not a fan of that Legion, it doesn't take anything away from the catapult profile. I still think it's easily the best siege weapon in the game. I love it. And in Storm the Camp is the prime scenario for it. So in a tournament, I think there'd be very few lists that would be able to stop your army because you have the numbers to plug in all the the holes on the board so your enemy can't really sneak models past right and if they do it's going to be one or two models which this catapult can just snipe so i think it's going to be very tough like if you play an army like mine where someone can deploy a goblin warband or something in your camp then it it might be like a little bit of a trouble for you or if someone has like a goblin town scribe in their camp and they're just like spawning them in your base then maybe i think the scribe Um, the scribe might not be a problem, actually. I was going to say, oh, no, it would be a problem because they could come in and disable the catapult. But I think, yeah, for your warband with the mercenary captain, I'm, I'm just thinking, unless there's a terrain piece, like, perfectly in the middle of my camp, I'm probably okay. Because I could position the catapult so it's at least, like, one movement, turn of movement away from you, and then I still have the troll there to defend it. And as long as I leave, what, because the, the catapult's four models, as long as I leave, like, another four orcs there, four or five guys, then it doesn't matter. Even if you deploy the submersionary captain, I'll still have the numbers advantage. That's true. Although, if I can keep the troll busy a couple turns, you don't get the rerolls on the shooting, so. Yeah. I... So, like, I could play more aggressively, too. I can deploy the Mercenary Warband not as, like, something last second to uh, end the game with, but mm-hmm. I can also do it early to distract mm-hmm. your troll while my army's moving up as well. But this isn't necessarily, like, a comparison, like, my list versus your list. So, like, my whole point is that there are very few ways that people can stop a catapult deployed that way. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm struggling to think of more than a few different armies that can stop it. So, 
I think it's a pretty close call between my list and your list. I might have the tricks, but yours is more bulletproof with the, with the catapult. I, I think so. And I would also add, I feel like mine can score points earlier, again, because of the catapult. Because firing that over, like, I don't know, four or five turns should be able to get a wound on the enemy leader, or possibly the kill. And it, immediately, as soon as that happens, I'm ahead in VPs. But I think yours has the potential to win bigger, if that makes sense. Like, I think mine might win more times, like, I don't know, seven or eight times out of ten. But then the wins that you would get with your list would be, like, bigger swings because of, like, the warp being able to put, like, more guys and have a whole bunch of movement into the enemy camp. Yeah, that's fair. I'm okay with giving Ian the win on this one, which it feels really weird to say giving Army of Cloth Mog the win. I know, right? But I think in this Storm the Camp situation, I think you've got a good setup. I think you've got a good composition. That being said, I think your list would perform better overall in a tournament if we were rating it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, you got anything else to add? No, that that does it. Okay, if he had the Theoden's Legendary Legion, where does that stack him? I mean, at a tournament once in Portland, I know that the player that ended up winning that tournament... He took all mounted Rohan, even though he took Aomer as a leader, so it wasn't the Legion. But just playing against uh, all mounted Rohan force is pretty damn good in Storm the Camp. Because you're immediately fighting on your side. And at the end of the game, there are fewer models left on the board. And it's just so easy to sneak in riders into the camp. And the other thing is, because he can get in your face so quickly, there are also more combats. So you're fighting more combats as well, So which I guess it gives you more of a chance to, more opportunities for the Rohan player to sneak models past you. <laughs> so I, I think it'd be really good. I don't know if I would put it above your list. Debatable against my list. Because I do I, think I'm... that it'd be hard for them to take down Bolg with yeah. the Elven Maiden support. But he doesn't really need to, right? Because... He should have the fight value advantage against all your troops. And against a lot of Hunter Orcs, he's wounding on fours. Yeah. You could shut down the heroes. It's tricky. I I think I'd probably put you guys at parity. You're prob- probably like, like about the same if he's got the Legion. I mean, I barely have a numbers advantage on him, so mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it would be a really close one. And he's got a, a lot of bows, and you have a lot of D4. So he's, he doesn't even need to go into combat to do a lot of damage. Yeah, that's fair. I have a lot of Hunter Orcs. He's going to be winning them on fives. Yeah. yeah. So, I was like, this conversation just keeps getting worse for me because every 10 seconds, I'm just like, if only I had just taken the Legion. If I had just taken the Legion. Forget those foot soldiers. Take the three riders in the right hand. That's all you got to do. To stop be fair. Trying, stop, stop trying to balance everything. To be fair. As Charles said, you still have like 30-something cavalry models. Like It's, it's still going to do well in this scenario. Like The Legion will do better, but it's still going to do well. Yeah. Okay, that was our Storm the Camp discussion for this week. Let's move on to our open topic where we'll be comparing metas from the past with the current meta. topic today we'll be talking about old metas and the current meta and how things have changed this is another sort of nostalgic kind of laid-back episode where we just compare with how the game has changed and i think we can agree that the game has improved over time and just give sort of a timeline and a little bit of a nostalgia trip 
I think it's best if we just focus on dividing this episode into three editions. So we have the current edition, we'll call it the MESBG or the Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game. We have the Hobbit edition, which was before this one. And the Blue Book edition, which existed up until the Hobbit movies. Before that, the game was more, I would say, it was like more narratively driven. And personally, I didn't really get that many match play games in during that period. So I think speaking from experience, it makes more sense to stick to these three editions. Yeah, I never was too young to care about match play (laughs) back then. And then when I did start, it was War of the Ring time, so... Yeah, so I guess in the first edition, we're going to talk about the Blue Book. came with the Moria, Mines of Moria starter set, which I still remember playing. That's the edition where it combined, like, the previous three movies, right? Like, soon after Return of the King. But it basically combined all three movies, all the profiles, put them into one book. And I remember that's when they introduced, like, banners and... I think banners were before. Right, banners. I think banners were in, in, like... Two Towers or or The Return of the King, I think. Right. I think that's when they, like, combined all three movies, and that was, like, the first formal release of an edition. What do you guys remember from those days? So I want to give, like, rough ideas of the meta for each of these eras. For this one, what's coming to mind is one of, like, the top tier list is you would either take Legolas and then later the the old 90-point Thranduil when he came out. So one of those... And then as many freaking wood elves as you could take. <laughs> does that does that sound familiar? Am I am I on the? I feel like I'm kind of on the on the dot there. No, this this is a little bit before yeah, my uh, time. So <laughs> it was pre warbands. So essentially, it was almost like open play, where like you bring whatever you want. The only thing restricting it was points cost, where like yeah, you still had like the point system. But I think just based on how heroes are costed, it's almost always better to use those points on warriors. And Ian mentioned, like, the 100 elf army for the evil side. I think you could do the same, something similar, right? You could do, like, spam out, like, 100 goblins with, like, a captain or, like, a shaman. And back then there was this rule, which a lot of people hated, called a volley fire, where essentially you double your bow range, but you hit on sixes. And once you rolled and you got your total amount of hits, you take turns picking uh, targets within a certain area. And that made games incredibly long and boring because armies could just sit back and and just shoot at each other all game. And there was no, like, reason to really move and engage in combat. And goblins especially, you're encouraged to do it because they hit on fives anyway. So hitting on sixes and doubling your range, you do it every time. And I think getting rid of that rule later on was one of the changes that really increased the the tempo and, and this, you know, excitement of the game. Still a cool rule. Don't mind seeing it in like scenario play, but oh my god, I feel like it would be so just so incredibly frustrating to play against that like nowadays in all these scenarios. Just like just picture storm the camp when you have volley fire, it'd be so much worse. I mean, in the movies you see uh, the defenders of Helm's Deep sort of volley fire over the deeping wall. What if they got it instead of the thirty inch rule? What if they just had in that legion they had the volley rule? That'd be pretty brutal in in certain scenarios, I think, right? Yeah, but you're still only getting, what, like 12 to 14 bows in the list at like 800 points, so... And you'd be volleying, like, for like two turns before you shoot. Yeah, I I think their current role is probably better, honestly. Because you still want to be moving up a little bit before you get into range anyway. Well, the the current rule, you have to stand still. You can't move. Yeah, but sorry, but what I mean is, like, you move up for the first, like, turn and and then once you get into range, right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. 
I remember in this edition, I didn't play competitively, but I was in high school, so I didn't own very many hero models. So this worked incredibly well for me because I just needed Aragorn and then I can use the 30, 40 Gondorians I have and that would be in an army. I didn't have to buy like captain level heroes. I didn't have to buy like warband leaders or whatever. And it's incredibly easy to start an army in this edition. But also it's just like, if you think about it, it's like for every hero that you take, you can take like an extra like dozen or two dozen warriors. And I just don't think that edition was very balanced. I think it's easily the least balanced of the three editions that we're talking about. I agree. And I also think it, it, it's probably almost the least interesting in terms of like combat and stuff. Because like when you think about it, what makes combat interesting now is having all the heroes in there. Because you're forced, like every list is going to have, almost every list is going to have at least like two to five heroes in it, right? And those heroes have a ton of cool special rules and they can roll combat and stuff. That's what makes yeah. like combat interesting. If you just have two sides lining up, one has 70 models, one has 100 models, and they just slap together. Like the ways you can influence the game are not going to be that interesting. But you would be at a disadvantage if you took more heroes because your numbers would drop way more. Yeah, I've heard people uh, um, describe Might, Will, and Fate being like the bread and butter of the game because that's what makes the game interesting. That's how you distinguish this game from, you know, dozens of other tabletop games, right? That's like what makes this game unique. And to have the option to take just one hero, like Ian said, the game's a lot less interesting. Also, yeah, I guess everybody's really happy Goblin Town didn't exist back then either. <laughs> yeah, you could just take Goblin King and like 300 to 400 goblins. So around 2012, when the first Hobbit movie came out, that's when the Hobbit edition dropped. And it added a whole bunch of things to this game. And I just remember it feeling like a totally different game altogether when I read the rules. Do you guys remember like when that edition came out, what your thoughts were and what the reception was like? Yeah, so there was actually like a bit of a weird period before this where they introduced maybe for about a year, between a year and two years, where they introduced the warband system. But then I don't think the Hobbit rulebook was out yet. I think we were still using the blue rulebook, right? That's when we released the the blue source books. With yeah. The scenarios in them. Yeah. 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 So that explains warbands, introduced warbands, but you're still using the blue rulebook rules. So that was, I think, when, when Alexander and I really got back into it. And that was an interesting time. So going from that, where you didn't have all like the special strikes and stuff, into the Hobbit edition, I honestly, I thought it was great. Because in my previous experience with the Blue Rulebook but Warbands, monsters kind of sucked. Because like you had no incentive to take them because they would just get a, a immobilized out of the game and then killed by a hero. And oftentimes you would also end up with like two lines of troops that were heavily armored. So defense six, defense seven, as soon as they smacked into each other, it was very boring. Because nothing would happen. You'd lose like one or two models a turn, and it would just take forever for things to start happening. So then once they added in the special strikes, that changed things, and that was really good. Specifically, Piercing Strike, which I'm happy they nerfed in the latest edition, because it used to be ridiculous, but it was fun ridiculousness. That's why they used to call the Blue Rulebook edition a game of sixes. I've heard it being referred to that many times. Sometimes it just takes forever for a battle to resolve, because there's just no way to buff your troops or... Most of your heroes don't have wound modifiers. So, yeah. The Hobbit edition brought warbands, which means that it's more organized in the way that you write an army list. Like Ian said, introduced special strikes and also more heroic actions. So heroic march allowed the action to start sooner in the game. You know, not every game feels like Storm the Camp (laughs) uh, as previously did. We also have heroic strikes, which uh, uh, gives heroes like another layer of strategy, right? 
where like fight value before was a big deal because if you didn't have anything in your army that could beat a fight seven mortal troll and the fight seven mortal troll kept rolling sixes like you didn't have as many like tools and that kind of changed the way it was played i will also say this is the first edition when the first nerf to immobilize happened which basically didn't change it at all because it was still just as good as it used to be <laughs> Instead of taking you down to fight value one and one attack, it halved your fight value and halved your attacks, which yeah. essentially did the same thing because people would always have another hero in there who could strike up and get to higher fight value anyway. So Immobilize was still ridiculous and was still a great counter to everything. But I agree with you. Heroic Strike was also really big because, yeah, it made things a lot more interesting and also kind of more frustrating in a way because you'd have two captain level models run into each other and they go... I'm going to strike, and I'm going to strike, and then we're just going to sit here for four turns striking off and not really doing anything. This reminds me, I think, my peak example of the effect Heroic Strike had on this game. It's not a real match play example, but I remember one of our first events at Wet Coast in Burnaby when we had, like, an all-heroes event one of the two days. And, you know, when Heroic Strike first became a thing, every, prior to this edition, every hero, if you were a hero, you could Heroic Strike. And so I had pretty much every Mordor hero that I owned at the time, probably, like, seven, six, seven Mordor heroes, and I had the Taskmaster standing in behind them all. And all my heroes would get into combat. And I would just heroic strike with all of them and be rolling to see if they were free. And I'd have like an orc captain that went from fight four to fight ten. And all of a sudden was out fighting Gilgalad. And it was like, well, how does this make any sense? This orc captain has now, you know, overtaken the most powerful king of elves in history. And I remember my opponent being like, this is silly. And I was like, this, this is silly. And that's what it was, because that's exactly how it worked. Everybody could heroic strike. I don't know. It was both amusing, but also there were certain things in that edition that obviously you wanted a lot of heroes, because then you could have more heroic strikes. But the heroes weren't that great, because then you were taking a lot of captain-level heroes and not a lot of you know big-named heroes. And Ian mentions Immobilize and how it went from one edition being ridiculous to being still very overpowered and slightly less ridiculous. That's another thing was I think in that edition, one of the biggest metas, and I saw a lot of this at tournaments, Ringwraiths on Felbeast because magic was incredible and all of the Ringwraiths could strike and you had monsters underneath them. So yeah, you had all the different aspects of things that that we've just talked about in one model. And you'd have one or two or three of them in an army, and it was just, yeah. I thought I'd say something, because the first, like, half this conversation, I'm like, I didn't really play until late in the big blue rulebook thing, and was relatively overwhelmed at the beginning of the Hobbit edition, just because I had just gotten the hang of the game. It was a very awkward transition all of a sudden, because it was like... I just got into the game, and I was like, I, I got the hang of it. And Ian's like, look at all these new special rules. And I'm like, I, I want to quit. This is too much, man. I just learned this. Okay, so the mid-tier heroes thing. That was huge. Yeah. So because of the warband system in this edition, it's so interesting. So you're encouraged to bring more heroes, but because all heroes have access to all the heroic actions, it didn't really matter which heroes you picked. So the skew in this edition was huge. Like there were some heroes that you would always take in every list. And there were some heroes that you would never take in those just because of the extra special rules that they had. Like in Rohan, Rohan wasn't great in this edition, but every single list that you took, every single Rohan list that was run, 
had Urkin Brand in it because he got plus two courage. He was a three might hero. He could strike. He could march. He could do everything. He was ridiculous. You had to have him. Same thing with like what else lists like with uh, the old friend with the 90 point friend. You would always see him because he was great. Rumel. Rumel. Oh, I love Rumel back then. You could Rumel's strike now, but yeah, yeah, but you could strike. His special rule changed, so this wasn't really a meta thing, but his special rule changed in this edition, so you could only make your opponent reroll one six instead of all sixes, which stopped him from being infallible. But last edition, when he could strike and everything else, yeah. Every yeah, time Rumel came out, I was like, you know what, I can't even play against this, because Rumel can strike if I strike, and I can't even roll sixes against Rumel. And Ian doesn't know how to roll anything other than a six. He doesn't know what the other five sides of that die do. So, yeah, it was a lot of sixes, and... Magic was stronger last edition, I want to say. Because you didn't have the, you didn't have the get your will back. Like, you know how now if you roll a six, you get your will back. You didn't have that. Also, the spells were more powerful, like as we'll talk about in a second, like transfix and stuff. The transfix was nerfed again in this current edition. So like back then, it was just basically you want to put like a ring wraith in your list if you're evil side. And immediately any name big beat stick hero on your opponent's side would just be useless, like Aragorn. Boromir, they just be useless uh, after they run out of will. So it didn't really encourage you to take iconic movie characters or named characters from the book. Or it was kind of almost like a game of captains. At times, yeah. I'm like, wait, this is Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. You know. We forgot to mention channeling. I think was introduced, right? Yes. So March channel and strike. Yeah. Were introduced in the Hobbit edition. We should maybe talk about channeling. Channeling also added a cool dynamic to spells. It, it kind of changed it from just like a one-dimensional thing where it's like all of a sudden now you can spend might points and you can make your spells better. And that was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. It also had the synergy of a Taskmaster where you could have it behind like a spellcaster and have them have essentially unlimited <laughs> channeling <laughs> spells. And Dude, yeah, like the perfect 500-point army was Sauron with the ring and then a Taskmaster sitting behind just whipping him. And then you just <laughs> would... And then, because the chill soul used to do, like, the bomb effect, right? So it'd be, like, the guy in the middle take a wound, and then everybody else within three inches or two inches takes a strength. Out. It was, like, you could just instant target catapult hits, and you could constantly regen. It was so stupid, but it was so much fun. You watched, like, chunks of a battle line evaporate. I will never forget the time playing against, I, th- I want to say it was some of Ian's elves, and I had Sauron. Ian was like, I have, like, these six guys blocking this doorway, and I'm like, boop. No, you don't. Uh, it was like 12, and you killed seven or eight of them. <laughs> yeah. It was a whole warband, and I was like, that entire like center chunk of that warband is gone. All he had left was the sideburns. It was really unfortunate. Yeah. The Hobbit edition brought a lot of good ideas, but there was a lot of stuff that was imbalanced. And there's clearly like tiers of profiles. Like There's like competitive, there's like a mixed, and then there's like a non-competitive. And you needed certain things in your list in order to be competitive and win a tournament. There are very few pure lists from this edition where uh, you would be able to win a tournament with. If you're evil, you should always ally in like a Shade or a Fell Beast. Okay, I'm going to do my little, my quick list thing for each edition right that I mentioned earlier. So for this one, what's coming to mind? Just before you continue, because you're covering all things I'm going to say. You're going to say double call wins, aren't you? No, but Colwyn's was great in this edition. <laughs> it was very viable doing two or three storm callers. It was awesome because they used to lead 12 and Colwyn's was cast on a two and it was way better. Anyway, but the main meta one was two fell beasts and a shade. And then it'd be a front line of either Corsair Reavers or Watchers of Karna because they used to be able to have the bow and the two-handed weapon and there were D4. And then backed up by a shade and yeah. Oh, and then like a, probably a Shadow Lord. I guess, I think, maybe a Shadow Lord, and then maybe, like, a Betrayer or something. 
because all of the ring rates had strike, they could all be mounted on Felbeast, and their special rules didn't cost will points. So, ugh, ugh. And those lists were horrible to play against. They were, they were so good. Because they, like, double hurl, that was super powerful. Ugh. Yeah, monsters also um, had better hurls. Like, you could hurl in any direction. I remember, like, at the start of the edition, before they clarified it, some people were arguing you could throw models up into the air, and then they take falling damage on the way down. I remember being a part of this debate more than once. <laughs> Towards the end of the edition, though, um, they introduced army bonuses. I don't think they were ever official, but it was more of like a beta test where they released like PDFs giving each army a special rule if you don't ally anything in. And I think that was a sign of like them moving towards what we have now. Yeah, I think it's the last source book that they released or the last two they released for this era had the army bonuses worked into those. Because I remember Thranduil's Halls had one. That's around the time where we got there and back again, yes. which is when they were redoing Battle of the Five Armies, since Battle of the Five Armies felt a little bit incomplete. They didn't have like half the profiles that we saw in the movies. So when they decided to relaunch Middle Earth SVG, before the current edition was released, they released this supplement first to cover the third Hobbit movie. And that's around the time where they introduced army bonuses. I don't think they were official, so not all the tournaments used them, but it was to encourage people to not ally and to take from just one army. No alliance matrix, really, to speak of. And then the army bonus is only applied if you took a pure list. Like, if you did any alliance, you lost the, the army bonus. But then there yeah. weren't any kind of restrictions. Yeah, and that leads to the current edition that we're playing, where I have here, I've compiled a list of the five major changes. And one is heroic tiers. So now we, instead of every hero leading 12, we have some that lead less and some that lead more. The heroic actions were restructured, so we gained a couple new ones. We gained a challenge, which was not that successful in its um, design, but it's there. And we got heroic defense. We got, we also got resolve. And then we also got everything restructured, so not every hero can call every heroic action. So the last two I had were keywords. So certain special rules uh, only apply to certain factions, certain races. And then the last one is the alliance matrix. It's arguably the biggest one where there are allies that you can take with your army that lets you keep bonuses. There are allies that lets you lose your army bonus. And then there are allies that takes away your army bonus and penalizes you. And that was coupled with certain character special rules that affected the Alliance Matrix, depending on what you took with that hero. So you've got like rules with Gilgalad, rules with Balin, where if you take something that is outside of that special rule, you become impossible allies and lose your army bonus and things like that. You know, if you take another named hero with Earl the Young. So it, it's that kind of thing, which I, I like it in a way because it kind of stopped some of the really silly things where it'd be like, stick a shade in, in every army, you know, as fun and chaotic as that was. Didn't make a ton of sense. I think generally most of us are pretty happy with the current edition when it was introduced and the things that it sort of restructured that was missing and sort of balanced things that were missing from last edition obviously playing it for a few years like we see that it has some faults but you know what what are your general thoughts on it do you guys agree with all of these changes do you think that these changes positively affected the game this current edition feels very much refined compared to the previous ones and it, it's really good too like like it feels like everything is kind of starting to play the way it should be right like you're encouraged to bring bigger heroes. You're encouraged to bring lots of heroes. Like, you have to to get enough warrior slots in there. 
monsters have a reasonable effect in the game, but they're not ridiculous. Magic has a good effect in the game, but it's not insane. You know, and then and then overall army balance feels really good. Almost every list can compete against every other list in most scenarios, right? Like sometimes you still get bad matchups where it's going to be really hard for you to win, but it's not impossible. Like the addition before this, you show up to a table, you put down your mods and go, there's like a 1% chance I win this. That situation I don't think ever happens now, which is great. Yes. You can win some games with every army, which I don't know if I could say previously. Like, at the start of the edition, I noticed they beefed up a bunch of the old Lord of the Rings profiles to match with the Hobbit, in the sense of not just matching their power, but also giving them special rules. Because previously, Lord of the Rings profiles, a lot of them, the heroes were just basic stat line with might, will, fate. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, there are a lot more special rules now, and and a lot of extra supplements and stuff, which means a lot of FAQs for all yeah. those special rules, which... I don't know. It's it's nice because we all love getting more new rules and new fresh rules, but it sucks that there's just there's so much stuff you need to know now. That is a tricky balance, and I don't have an answer to that. The problem of more rules versus being FAQ'd and like, do you need to update? I know that some players that play some of the other games have said that they were really happy with this game because they didn't need to know a thousand different little rules for every profile and every army faction in order to play the game effectively. And while I think that's still true, I think we're getting more and more situations where we're sitting there going, well, what's the effect of this? Check the FAQ. Because it's it's been a while, and now we've got to check the FAQ. So, Just go look at the four pages of FAQs about flowing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I've definitely had to reference that page a few times. It's just one of those things where I think, you know, this edition is now four years old. And I think in a couple of years, we might see another book. And it's not even the next edition will change things dramatically. I think it will just rewrite a few things to say, we've taken the FAQs and we've clarified these things, and now everything is in this book again. And we're going to reset that for another six years. I think we're now to a point where everything is relatively well-balanced. There's, of course, a few things that we've been unhappy with. We've talked before about the FAQ that was meant to target Kirdan and and kind of overly affected the entire alliance matrix made it harder to ally even historic alliances you know there's things like that that we don't love but at the same time there's nothing in the game currently where i'm like wow this is terribly unbalanced yeah having a lot of special rules not necessarily a criticism but it is a challenge keeping up with the faqs especially for new players i think the other i don't want to say negative but like another potential criticism of this edition is We mentioned it a few times on previous episodes, but just the balance of like theme and competitive play and um, just match play. There's this new way to play, which is called Legendary Legions. And it's when, you know, you're building an army based on a snapshot in time of uh, an event in the books or the movies. And you're restricted to a certain army list and you gain bonus special rules. And that and also just the alliance matrix. It's I think it's interesting that they're kind of guiding you in certain ways of like how to build lists. But then you also feel limited in a lot of situations where like you feel like, okay, I can only ally with these two armies these are my only choices and it's a little bit contentious on whether that's good for the game or not yeah the the fortitude faq just doesn't need to exist anymore 
it was necessary at the time. It, it was something they tried to, to change it. But I think I don't think there's anything wrong with repealing FAQs now that you fix the problem in another way, in a better way. Yeah. And yeah, because it it also was having like you said, there's a certain effect now where it's before every fortitude hero was viable for an alliance and you could do a lot of cool things and i feel like we were seeing more fortitude heroes out there in lists before that but now because if you want to do any kind of yellow alliance you have to have valor heroes valor heroes shot up in value a lot and fortitude heroes are just so much harder to use so we're kind of swinging back right we used to have like few heroes then we had a lot of mid-tier heroes then at the start of this edition we were at like big heroes and a good hero balance between every different type of hero and now we're kind of going back down where it's like okay now only certain heroes are good again yeah overall i'm happy with this edition and where we are now but a little anxious on like where it's going to go next if we do get a new edition and what that will look like like is it going to go down the same path and maybe like they'll just get rid of the entire matrix and it'll just be pure and legendary legions like i hope that won't be what happens because i do like to, to build lists and play around with like certain kind of like gimmicks and tricks and stuff and it'd just be so much harder to do if it was if that was yeah. the case i like the alliance matrix i think it's nice to have some restrictions in there but I, again, like I think at the start of the edition, we had a magical time where you could still do a whole bunch of cool alliances with Fortitude Heroes and there were Legendary Legions news. And it was a really nice bounce. It was a really nice place. And now it's less nice because now you're very restricted on hero choice. Like, I don't know. Personally, I like Toriel. I love that profile. I find it very hard to use because I like running alliances and she never, I, I can never squeeze her in anywhere. That's a good example. Yeah. And for Alexander, I still love Rumil. He's just very hard for me to ally into anything <laughs> in a usable way. Yeah, unless you want to play a pure Lothlorien army. He is difficult. He's one of those kind of casualties of that FAQ. There's a, a good handful of them. In fact, there's more than a handful. There's a ton of them. Yeah, I think aside from army building and the Matrix, I'm pretty happy with this balance. And as I've seen with like other games, the more profiles and armies that you add into the game, the harder it is to balance. And so, like, I think one positive of Games Workshop doing really slow stream of releases is that, like, the game remains relatively balanced because you're not getting, like, a couple armies a year. You're not getting huge, massive changes to certain factions. And so there's also less need to constantly put out FAQs to balance them. I like that part of the game. I hope that stays with the next edition, just like the pace of it. As much as I love getting new books and new models and stuff, I just think that's that's what makes it so balanced compared to other games or shop games I've played. Middle-earth strategy battle game is by far the most balanced because of its pace, I think. I honestly 100% agree with that. Everything does feel balanced, even though a lot of these armies, like, like I guess, haven't been updated since 2018. Like a lot of the base uh, Lord of the Rings armies have, but, but they still feel competitive next to all the new stuff that's getting released. Yeah, which is awesome. Like, like nothing feels super imbalanced. All right, that's pretty much our discussion on past versus present metas. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast.